It's episode 52 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I am JP Breen. You'll notice that Steve Garshinsky is not giving us our standard professional intro. And I am joined by Ryan Top and the one and only Paul Noonan, who you probably know as Badger Noonan from Twitter. So, Paul, thanks for uh, joining us, man. Uh, thanks for having me. And happy to be hosting the actual physical location this week. Yeah, this is, yeah, I'm, this is weird. We're on the road. This is like a, a road trip for the podcast. Should we tell people I'm, like I'm in Detroit visiting I uh, say I'm doing in-laws stuff. My my both of my in-laws are from Detroit. So we're all in the Eastern time zone doing this. That's right. It that uh messed up my brain this morning when <laughs> I knew we were recording this morning and then recognized what time zone everybody was in. And we're also we should mention doing this on Saturday morning, so there's still going to be a couple games before you hear this. So right now we're we're on that high of uh Eric Thames walk off. Hopefully we get to keep riding that particular enjoyable thing as opposed to other opportunities. Other opportunities for feelings that have been explored in the past week. Yes. <laughs> Off and on. Because so, it's a baseball season and apparently that it means losing some games. It does. So you can help finds uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. We always want Listener questions, as you know, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com, or you can uh, follow our Facebook page if Ryan decides to look at our Facebook page, which he does increasingly. So you can also follow the three of us on Twitter. Paul is at Badger Noonan, and you can find all of uh, Ryan and I's information in our milwaukee's uh tailgate twitter bio and steve's Finally, too unless we take it out i mean we, <laughs> we could, might we could just take it he out he doesn't he doesn't deserve to be followed for this week and finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. And this month's podcast will feature an extended interview viewers prospect uh John Perrin portion of that is going to be found later in the podcast and i know that ryan is particularly excited to be able to feature that interview this week yeah i haven't even been able to listen to it yet haven't had time but i'm looking forward to it yeah we talk about uh kind of minor league and major league labor issues since that's something that john is extremely uh passionate about he is going to be attending law school after he finishes up his baseball career hopefully in milwaukee but then we also had an opportunity to talk about Life on the road, uh, life as a minor leaguer, what it's like to show up at the at the stadium one day, have your manager call you in and tell you you need to move to another place across the entire country uh, in a day's notice and what that means about rent and like how to find a new place to live. And we also are, are talking a little bit about the brewers kind of nutritional regime and, and the nice thing that the brewers are doing in that front. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing. From Dragon Flute to Block Party to Fantasy Factory IPA, K4 specializes in English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Out now is Carbon 4's Oaktober Ale, their uh, October Oktoberfest-style ale. And this ale fermented at near lager temperatures and is an attempt to capture that magic in a glass. Soft toffee notes are wrapped up in a blanket of the flavors of fresh-baked bread. The whole experience is accented with a uh, pleasant and subtle woodsy experience provided by a whiskey-soaked 
blend of French and American oak. You can try it for yourself. You can see uh, and see if you can fight the urge to jump into a freshly raked pile of leaves. And Fantasy Factory IPA is now in cans. And Ryan, you excited oh. about that one? Yes. You I, I enjoy Fantasy Factory. It is a go-to, a long-standing go-to. Yep, that is an excellent one. And um, cans are... Cans hold temperature better and actually stop beer from going bad um, for longer periods of time. So cans are actually better than bottles, despite what everybody thinks, as long as you pour it into a glass. Well, and they're also like better for shipping, and yep. like you can ship more in a in smaller space because bottles take up more space. Also, they're a lot lighter, so you're not dealing with like that extra cost if you're environmentally conscious. I know a lot of breweries that are more environmentally conscious have started to go to that. Anyway, so pro can can is good. You know what? And if they cost a little bit extra because of the tariffs, just gave us a lot of good uh, good reasons to be able to pony up that extra 20 cents. <laughs> so you can find it at uh, both of those at the brewery in Kinsman Boulevard or at your local real ta- uh, retailer. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon4, beer, brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear. They're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the Mix Pre 3 and Mix Pre 6. For more information, you can always visit sounddevices.com. All right, let's talk about Eric Thames, his walk-off shot against uh, Wade Davis on, I guess, Friday night. Professional number seven hitter, Eric (laughs) Thames. Wow, yeah, he was in the seventh spot last night, wasn't he? Yeah, so so there are a couple of things to talk about there. Number one, I think uh, a lot of people rightly are focusing on the fact that this gets the Brewers back uh, on a winning way, but I think it's August now, and we can actually talk about the fact that wins against potential wildcard opponents uh, are are good, right? So, I mean, the the Rockies are well above five hundred. They're they're in the wild card hunt. But they're starting to lose some games because of their bullpen. And what did I mean? Did Friday night's win mean anything more than just getting the good feelings back? Or what are you looking at in terms of the takeaway from Friday? Um, I that was first of all that was a really fun one, and I will say a lot of people, despite I feel like we came into that game with a lot of negative feelings. I was on Twitter last night. I got to watch a game till its conclusion for the first time in a while. Being on the Eastern time zone is terrible for the West Coast swing. And a lot of people called that home run. Like, I had a lot of people, like, two pitches before he hit it, being like, he's got this. And I, I actually had kind of the same reaction when he when he whiffed on that first slider that Davis threw down in the dirt. Tatum's kind of looked like... Um, if, that, if he's just going to throw 86 miles an hour to me, at some point I'm going to destroy one. And that's exactly what happened. And my biggest worry about beating the Rockies like that last night was that they that they take him out at some point and don't use Wade Davis anymore. Because um, <laughs> that was like the, that was the quintessential, like, our setup guy is better than our closer, and you really should have just left him in to finish the game, and you didn't, and thank you for that. So... Um, I'm happy that we beat them. I hope we didn't beat them so bad that they don't go that they go away from the, that model or put somebody else in it. So that was good. Well, I think Wade Davis's contract will help him kind of try to keep the ninth inning yep. a little bit. Yeah, but, that's good too. But I mean, I, I think I complete I completely agree with you in terms of feeling very confident with Eric Thames uh, because 
as soon as you know he he dropped the curveball on him first he he swung on it over the you know right over it curveball in the dirt yep. next curveball outside so it's a one and one count and just after that curveball you knew he was coming in with a fastball and if the fastball was anywhere in the middle of the zone eric thames knew fastball was coming yep. and he's been able to adjust his swing this year that anything above the belt last year where he just couldn't he could not handle it and we talked about it on the podcast before and he's adjusted you know his his zone because i guess maybe for newer listeners um he was talking about in korea that actually the strike zone doesn't go above the belt and so he didn't have to swing at anything like that. And he had basically tailored a swing to not handle anything from the belt and above. But in the big leagues, obviously, you, you have to be able to handle that pitch because it's a strike. And so this year he started to adjust and he talked about how he was really starting to do that last September. Um, and that that walk off homer was one of those high fastballs that last year he would have swung through or just basically popped up and he was able to crush it for you know 400 feet. I mean, there's this impression that he's having a down year, and I think maybe some of that comes from the fact that he missed so much time due to injury. But if you look at his his OPS plus at this point, going into the games on Saturday, he's above where he was last year at a 125 in 2000 uh, and uh, what 17? Yeah, 2017, and now is at 128. And you can tell that, like you're saying, that he has made adjustments and he isn't as one-dimensional a hitter as he was when he first came over. So I think he's an incredibly important cog in the offense. And I think they really did miss him when he was out and when he uh, when he missed time, especially. It was really noticeable when he, uh, he had to go on the DL right before the All-Star break. And they didn't have him for those last few games in Pittsburgh for that doubleheader. He just... He brings, I think, a, a discipline to the offense that is carries over to other hitters. I think in some way he he sometimes I think is able to show when you have a patient hitter like that, especially leading off, show other hitters sometimes that well maybe you don't need to swing as much as you are and attack quite as much as maybe you think you do because this guy's actually not throwing in the strike zone and you can you can work counts deeper, get into hitters counts, or even take a walk. So I think he's underrated a little bit too because he makes the occasional like very obvious gaffe when he's out of his position. And the fact that he's out of his position should be applauded, not made fun of. And um it's great to be able to get his bat in there. And when they have Kane to cover more outfield space, not that Broxton's bad at all. He's not defensively, but um, you can get away with that. You can get his offense in there. <clears throat> and the fact that he's willing to look silly out there is good. And um, I, I also, I, I like reading any piece on Tame's preparation because he's such a giant baseball nerd and he puts so much work and time into hitting that it's like reading about Tony, Tony Gwynn. Like that guy works his butt off to, to be a good hitter. And like last night is when it really showed up and he's great to have around. I hope they have him for a long time. I think yeah. Ben Lindbergh described him and his time when he was in Korea as he was a baseball monk. Like he would yeah. go home and he would just like watch video and read about hitting and just study hitting because he was kind of isolated and didn't have a lot of other English speakers around. So he basically spent that time just becoming a super advanced, thoughtful hitter. Um, well, and part of, and part of that, I think you're the the language barrier and the cultural barrier is absolutely something that he talked about being lonely there and yeah. one of the reasons why he wanted to come back. But part of it is is he struggled. Right. Like he struggled to adjust to the constant breaking balls that were being thrown in Korea. And he wasn't that good his first year there, or at least his first couple of months when he when he first moved over. And 
there are, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, how do, how do you deal with success? How do you deal with all of these things? Uh, how do you make adjustments? But one of the key markers of a baseball player and the one thing that, you know, if you talk to scouting directors or scouts or anybody in player development, um, they put a premium on, on makeup uh, so highly that so many guys there, I know one scouting director who has said that basically they they're really good at being able to tell who has the physical tools to make it. And, and that a lot of, a lot of guys have the physical tools to be able to be big leaguers. The one thing they can't quantify yet. And the hardest thing to be able to do is to tell who can deal with failure and who is going to have the makeup to be able to make adjustments. And that's the one thing that they're focusing on as an organization is trying to figure out how they can isolate because they said the deciding who makes it and who doesn't make it in the big leagues, they don't think is physical. They think it's completely mental and they think it's all about makeup. And Eric Thames is one of those players that instead of, I think, you know, some of the interviews, I think it was on vice sports, um, some of the long form stuff, he really beat himself up pretty badly when he was in the U S and he struggled and it was moving to Korea and really having nothing to do, but sit and learn and, and adjust. And his, it's not just about like, you know, the, the intellectual side, which, which y'all talked about really nicely. But like he said, when he was in Korea, he spent like two hours a night stretching because he knew his body just was so tightly wound. He couldn't handle it. And, it's those types of, I guess, types of makeup, if you want to call it that, that really can help somebody get through tough spots. Um, and so I think Eric Thames is a really interesting player in a lot of different in a lot of different realms. But it was nice to be able to see him hit that walk off shot. Yes, it was. So Paul talked about this a little bit before, saying that there was some negativity coming into Friday night's game. Negativity um, with baseball, never. Well. The Brewers lost a couple of games in a row against the Dodgers. And but over the course of the the West Coast stretch, even though Paul was maybe not uh, you know, awake enough to be able to see it all, they actually did really well uh, in the West Coast. But there were a lot of people that were that were I don't know if they were heartbroken or they were just really upset for some reason about the last couple of games against the Dodgers. So what was going on? that really kind of took the West coast stretch that was really good and kind of turned it sour. What was going on? Well, I mean, losing a close game where there were some other options, some other things they maybe could have done in that game on Wednesday night. Uh, that was a little bit rough. I think we saw though, I know there was a lot of debate about, well, why no hater? Why no, uh, Soria, I think on Wednesday night and why no, uh, Taylor Williams? Well, it's pretty clear Hader and Soria were not available after having pitched. Hader had pitched 39 pitches two days before, and then Soria had pitched, I think, three days in a row, two days in a row, something like that. I think they were definitely staying away from them. And well, then and he went, he went 30, Soria also went 30 pitches, I believe, on Monday. Yeah, yes, he did. right. So he was, he was going multiple days in a row, but also had a pretty heavy workload. He had a rough stretch. And then, so you had that. And, we also saw with Taylor Williams in the next game, he is not in a great place right now either in terms of as much as Matt Albers is struggling, Taylor Williams is also struggling too. Yeah, I think part of the big problem with the, the big negativity is you had the trade deadline, so your team turned over a little bit, and then you had a couple of guys who just came back, 
struggle mightily in Albers and, and Scope joining the team. And people focus on that as causes. And I think that causes a lot of the problems with fans, like, irrationally reacting. And Scope also had a high-profile booted ball in addition to striking out a ton, which led to the huge barrage. Um, and then, you know, Albers is just getting lit up. Every, anytime he's brought into the game, you know, people react to that. It's, don't bring him into the game. Well, you have to either get him right or figure out to where to send him. So you can't just not play him. Right. And I mean, in the game that was, what did that end? 24 to 5? 21. It was, it was 21, wasn't it? I think it was. Oh, it was. It was in the 20s, whatever. I think you're thinking. I think you're thinking of the Mets game. Oh, yeah, you're right. I am. I I made a blackjack joke the next day, so I assumed it was 21. It was 21. Yeah, it was like the most runs that the Dodgers had ever scored at Chavez Ravine or something. It was some really stupid thing like um, and that's always going to be. I mean, team gets their their head kicked in, especially when it was those a lot of those late runs scored just because the the position players that were in was a Perez just couldn't get an out and it just dragged and dragged and dragged ruined his perfect ERA. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A thing, a thing that is extremely important. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're going to have over the course of 162 games, you're going to have, you know, patches like that. And yeah, absolutely. Overall, a five and three trip to the West coast compared to, I mean, we've been, we've all been following this team for a while. And we know that these West Coast trips, even when the teams you're playing aren't necessarily the greatest, can sometimes turn into nightmares. And they can really, you can have some real damage done to the overall season. So to come away from, you know, four at, at San Francisco and four at the Dodgers, five and three, that is an absolute success in basically any way you would generally measure it. There's There's really not a lot to, you know, complain about aside from, the specifics of those games. Um, and then that's a question of how far in the weeds do you actually want to go? How far do you want to to push something like that? And I generally try to stay away from it because it gets, right. it's a long season. Right. Well, and I think one of the other pieces of negativity that I think was really following the team into the last couple of days against the Dodgers was following the trade deadline. Um, and, you know, and we should obviously talk about the Jonathan scope trade that came across on Tuesday, but so many people were upset that the Brewers did not add to their starting pitching. <laughs> and then after they didn't start to their part, after they didn't add to their starting pitching, uh, they gave up a lot of runs. Also, right. True. And, and so that adds a lot of fuel to the narrative fire. People, yeah. People I, sure I, hate Wade Miley. Goodness. Like every, well, right. And somebody Twitter who's actually of, been pitching really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every Twitter example is, do you want Wade Miley pitching in this important game? Like, well, Kind of, maybe, and like, who's better? Who's who are you going to get that's better than Wade Miley that that was moved at the deadline? Well, Wade Miley's like a fourth or fifth starter he on is. this he's team. Not, first of all, he's not going to be in that spot anyway. Like, right? Yeah. Why level. would why would they need to start a, a pitcher of that quality? Uh, you know, in a in a critical but, game that doesn't but was, make any so sense. Was Archer the best starter who was moved? I, I think he had yeah. the, he had the highest DRA, but his DRA he was like 59th out of pitchers who had over 75 innings pitched. The Brewers starters are right around all right around the 70s. He's barely better than any of them, if he's better at all. Um, right, but I mean, to be fair, there are a couple things about Archer in terms of moving to the NL, getting out of the AL East, being able to do some things that should allow him to to pitch better than he has for the Rays. But I think the point's well taken, especially when you look at what the package right they gave up. Pirates. 
up, they right? gave up an arm and a leg to get him. And the Brewer equivalent of that would have had people screaming in the streets, I think. Well, and we still don't know what the full uh, package is going to be because there's a player to be named later that's going to be part of that deal. And we've heard that it's potentially a pretty significant piece that's going to have to go back from the Pirates. So, Well, it's a lot like when the Brewers got the player to be named later back from from Texas, right? It ended up being Ryan Cordell. It was a nice piece. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that they couldn't quite decide on who it was going to be, but they had it kind of like pretty narrowed down and they just needed to get the trade across the line. Yep. Um, right. And so, but the Brewers did make a trade. Uh, Jonathan Scope came to Milwaukee. They traded uh, Jonathan VR, uh, right-hander Luis Ortiz and uh, young shortstop Gene Carmona to be able to get scope and sorry about that, Brian. That's, that's a rough one. I know for you personally. Well, it turns out that, uh, Gene Carmona is got, apparently now I have become attached to Gene Carmona is like, I think he's going to be an absolute all-star rather than me telling people that, uh, here's this player they haven't really heard of and they should pay attention to him. Here's a guy that Uh, exists. (laughs) And, but I think for me, there are a couple of things that really, uh, come to light for Jonathan scope. Number one, I really like Jonathan scope uh, a lot. I think he's somebody who I think he's 26 and has been either a three or four win player for the, each of the last two years. He's had offensive production in, in the difficult AL East and he's coming to address. um, We needed another right-handed bat and we needed more options in the infield and yes, he's going to play some shortstop and we can talk about positional flexibility and we can talk about the, the, the impact that, you know, playing guys like Travis Shaw at second base and Jonathan scope at shortstop, what that's going to do. But the fact that they have so much depth now that one of the main pieces in the trade for scope is Jonathan VR, somebody who had basically played himself out of a position in Milwaukee, but is still enough of an asset that he can be leveraged to bring in somebody like Jonathan scope. And that's exactly what you want to be able to do when you have that depth trade somebody and, and kind of somebody who still has value, but be able to upgrade uh, to a better, maybe not somebody who is, is under a longer term contract, but somebody that could potentially be the case down the road. But for the brewers, in my opinion, I think it's, I think the cost extremely reasonable, which is probably why you see, you know, David Stearns, we don't talk about the fact that David Stearns doesn't overpay, right? Like we saw the the trade return and I was like, wow, that's really reasonable, which of course you're like, well, right. That's why we did it. Yes. And, and so what are the things that you're looking for, for, for Jonathan scope? What are you concerned about? What are the things that are positive? Uh, and I guess, Paul, I'll tell you one thing I'm concerned about with him. Cause I, I agree with you that I wanted another right-handed bat. They're super lefty heavy and they can be shut down by a lefty pretty easily. Um, and he is a right-handed bat, but for his career, he actually has reverse platoon splits, and he only has one season where he doesn't, which is last season, where he was outstanding. But um, this season, he's he's backwards, and so he's not a he's potentially not a great platoon person for that reason. I don't know why that is. It seems really bizarre, but it's held up over a very large sample at this point. Um, and he he is good, but I do I do worry sometimes about. Um, you know, I don't think VR was going to turn it around, and he is better than bad VR. But I do worry that 
he might be able to turn it around still. He's young and he's at very athletic and he's got a four win season under his belt too in the not too distant past. So, but, but I mean, even if he does turn it around, that wasn't going to be in Milwaukee. He didn't, he wasn't going to have playing time to turn it around. Well, I, I suppose, I, I guess not. Um, but I, I guess I don't think of anybody else other than him as the regular second baseman. And now I think of scope as the regular second baseman. So, um, yeah, fair enough. I mean, he's a placeholder, right? Unless they were to move Hira. And so far, there doesn't seem to be much of an indication that that's going to happen. But they've also bought themselves a little bit extra time because Scope does come back for 2019. Yeah. They're not in our, under any rush now to try to get Hira in the lineup as long as they have Scope. And this is potentially a, a means for them to, you know, even potentially make a trade with scope in the off season to see if, if somebody offers something, if, if scope does have a good second half here and if somebody comes strong with an offer, he could potentially be moved in the off season. It gives them that flexibility as well. I overall, I think that the most important thing that he brings for them is additional power because that seems to be along with the Mustakas trade and what they're doing, they're trying to construct a lineup that can give uh, pitchers headaches, basically one through seven. Now they're trying to, to create a lineup that pitchers cannot take off uh, any particular hitter because any one of those guys has the potential to really hammer them and scope when he was traded. What was it? He had hit nine home runs in 20 games coming in. Yep. So there was definitely an uptick in what he was doing and he was, he was seeing the ball better at that point. And there's something to be said, obviously scope and Mustakas are not the highest on base guys. They're definitely not big walkers. Neither one of them has a long history of being big walkers. And that sometimes gets overblown in the modern game. And sometimes people miss then that, well, there is actually tremendous power here and that's, Really, they're going to be able to run out lineups that basically one through seven cause pitchers to have to uh, deal with the fact that any one of them can go deep on them quite easily. And in the game, the way it's set up to be played today, the with uh, the home run rate being up with the balls being juiced or whatever, they're, you know, more home run happy. You're set up to uh, to have success in that environment. I think this is you know, what they want. The concern then would be, and we don't know how, how true this always is, but sometimes in postseason play, uh, home runs aren't as easy to come by sometimes depending on the weather, sometimes depending on, you know, just because of the time of year that that takes place. So we'll have to see how that all, how that all plays in the long term. but it is definitely, at least in the regular season, something that you know, they, they seem to be very dedicated to power, which is sort of a long-standing Brewers tradition, really. Well, but I think in terms of thinking about here and next year, the fact that Scope is under team control through 2019, it's it's worth noting that he is going to be playing some shortstop. We saw that on Friday night. And conceivably, if he can play shortstop halfway decently, and he played shortstop uh, throughout the vast majority of his minor league career. So it's not something that's necessarily new to him. That's still potentially an avenue towards playing time in 2019, even if Kesson here is coming back, right? Like I know that Orlando Arcia is still the shortstop of the future. He's still the person that you want to be able to rely on for having quality glove, 
and the team hopes that he's able to make the turnaround having an offseason and a spring training will hopefully get his bat back on track and then you can kind of move forward in there and go that way but here is probably not if scope is around and has a good second half or even if he doesn't have a good second half even if he's still just around here probably isn't going to be able to break camp with the team for uh reasons that might be surrounding uh, uh, money. Um, And so scope allows them to be able to have somebody still quality at second base. And I'm not actually as worried about scope at shortstop as I am. You know, when we talked about the fact that Travis Shaw is going to be trying to play second base and deal with all the footwork around the bag. I'm not as concerned with Jonathan scope at shortstop because uh, he has played there a bunch. He has, he is used to playing around the bag. Um, but I take it through my conversations that are all that have all been very reasonable on Twitter about this. Uh, a lot of people are very concerned about Jonathan Scope playing defense at short at shortstop. Uh, are you all like cool with this? Does it not matter because you know dingers are cool? Um, I'm I'm not super concerned with it, but it's not my favorite thing in the world. I if they're gonna have all this other power in the lineup and have Shaw at second base with Mustakis with. Thames with Aguiar. Um, I, I, I like Garcia there just to take the weak side of the shift and and to just play the heck out of the position. And I feel like that lets them win with like solo home runs and just with the, with the lineup they put together. And when he's at short, it just seems like a potential defensive disaster waiting to happen. And yeah, his bat's there and they can maybe play that game. But I don't know. I, I well. It's, but, it's not awful. It's fine. It's just different. But, but let me play. Let me play this card though, because I think one of the things that you're exactly right that it does often feel like it's a potential defensive disaster at any step of the way. Defensive gaffes are so much more frustrating than a guy going over four with four strikeouts, right? Like because they're just things that you shouldn't have to deal with. They can compound much more quickly. We're used to seeing guys strike out. We're not used to seeing guys make terrible. Yeah. Well, we are used to it, but we're used to getting like super mad at it. Um, Orlando Arcia at shortstop this year, the Brewers cumulatively have a 540 OPS. That's the worst in the league. It's no so question. Yeah. But um, like worse than any, baseball player last year who was qualified hitter so uh at shortstop their offensive production has been uh the the worst hitter in baseball basically so how much is the fact that even if if scope is not the player he was last year everyone wants to say that you know well if you average his numbers he's maybe a 770 ops hitter that's that's 230 points better in ops than what they've been getting thus far if that's your worst case scenario, how much is that? It's worth a lot. Up, but he was, it, and 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 is it is it just that the shortstop and the and the defensive gaffes feel worse, or is that somehow potentially going to be able to average it out? Because I don't know. We don't really know how to talk about you know the difference between an offensive upgrade and a defensive upgrade. So I'm just kind of thinking aloud. It's not. I'm not trying to lead a question here. But yeah. like, how bad does he have to be defensively to make that not worth it? Well, was was he not part of basically the worst defensive um, middle infield in baseball at his old team? 
Uh, well, playing, he was the he was part base. of the worst defensive output as, as a whole, but yes. his DR his DRS as a whole has been basically league average right. throughout his career. Okay, well, okay, well, there's that, and Arcia um, on a per play basis, um, at, at least on a per play basis, has the highest FRAA on the Brewers by a good amount. Um, he, he just nips Kane. Uh, you're exactly right. Yes, so, he does. So he's you know it's one of yes his offense is atrocious and the positions is, but it. We're, we're we're pretty sure based on eye test and stats that he is excellent at the position. And I'm not, yeah. I don't know. Am I, I'm less worried about scope having big gaffes at shortstop because like you said, he's played there and shortstop is more of a position where I've, I feel like range is a bigger factor. Second base is more technical. Shortstop is more purely athletic. And I feel like Scope's going to be okay in that, from what I've seen. Scope's going to be okay at that. He, but what's the lack is going to be, does he have the range that Arcia does? Because almost nobody does. There are very few shortstops who have that range. So what are you giving up in terms of him turning plays, or that him not turning plays that Arcia would have? Uh, yeah. That, you know, where a ball gets through the infield and is into the outfield, and you don't even necessarily think about it as being a ball, well, if RC was in the game, he very easily could have gotten to that. We'll have yeah. to see. I think that what they're going to do, they're going to attempt to leverage this because that's what Craig Council does. They're going to attempt to leverage this as much as possible where in situations where it benefits them most to have defense on the field, you're going to see more of RC. And where they really need offense, you're going to see more of scope at that point. And that'll be, that'll change within games. You'll, we've already seen, you know, RCA coming in as a defensive replacement and well, it depends on actually, but he would have been a defensive replacement had the game continued on. Um, Didn't need it because you can hit homers. Right. So you have that, you you have that ability with council. Who's very comfortable in terms of making on the fly changes and changing up the lineup. So I think they will be able to mitigate a lot of those defensive issues that way too, by getting RC on the field to play defense in, in a lot of those situations where it's more advantageous. So, yeah, I I think, so my last point on this, and then we're going to get to a Patreon question on the topic. Um, Brewers starting pitchers have uh, the lowest ground ball rate of any starting rotation in baseball. Um, Right. And so in some ways I do wonder how much of that is, looking at the stats and saying, yeah, if we do actually have to take a step backward in any defensive area, we don't actually hit that many. We don't allow that many ground balls. Maybe that is a place that we can take, take a risk. And then exactly as you said, right. Once, once the relievers come in, they obviously give up a lot more ground balls with Dan Jennings, with, with Jeremy Jeffers, all those guys. Um, And so then being able to make the move for for Arcia then can actually make some sense there. But Darren Jones uh, asked a question on Patreon. And he was saying, uh, and and this kind of looks back at the the Moustakas trade and the Scope trade all together. But he's asking, do you think that making a big trade acquisition has tangible impacts on the team beyond just that player's individual performance? So for example... Do you think it improves other players' confidence or psyche to the extent of achieving better tangible results on the field? And I'm gonna I'm gonna add to Darren Jones's question here. Even though big time acquisitions, you know, can they actually impact a team? 
right? And I think we we need to talk about that. But in terms of Jonathan Scope, can a big time trade put undue pressure on a player like Scope, who obviously is pressing? His he's swinging at almost seventy percent of his pitches, which he's never done, and that's a whole lot of that's a lot of it's uh, a large percentage of swings. <laughs> so in for big trade acquisitions, even though it could potentially have big tangible impacts for the team positively, can it put too much pressure on somebody like Scope who hasn't played for another organization before and is maybe trying a little bit too hard to make an impact? Yeah, it can. And these people, are, players are all humans and they are all going to react to new situations and new teammates differently. And um, it, it can impact that player. And it clearly is, I think, with Scope right now, as JP said, um, he's obviously pressing. He, I'm sure, want, everybody when they get traded wants to make a good impression immediately. You don't want the fans to start booing you after 10 at-bats. Um, it, hopefully that does not happen. Um, and it, it can definitely have an impact on teammates as well, both positive and negative. Somebody's always shipped off on these trades as well. Um, you, know, you never know if that guy was a good clubhouse guy or a good teammate. Um, you don't know if the guy you're bringing in is that as well. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. That I guess the thing is, yeah, it can have an impact, and there's no way for us as fans to really tell what it's going to be. Um, and it's also easy for us to put that narrative on it after the fact right now. And, you know, one thing, it's probably, it's not good that he's pressing because his production's not good, but it's good that he's trying hard. It's good that he clearly wants to fit in. And, you know, these guys are professionals, and I'm sure he'll get it figured out. Um, but it, that, that's just storytelling that we really can't do on the outside with any accuracy. Right. It's, right. It becomes a very post hoc sort of thing that people do. But I think that really one of the things with this, if you have a guy, it, it's very hard to predict. So this is a, a thing that teams have to be incredibly careful about, but you just can't predict um, when a guy comes into a situation exactly what that's going to look like and how that's going to play out. Uh, I think that in, in the particular, if we're talking about like with Jonathan Scope here, He's also got a difficult position because he knows he's coming in. Travis Shaw made this commitment that he was going to go over to second base and basically risk quite a bit of, if nothing else, face on his part uh, by by engaging in this experiment that the Brewers want to do with having him play second base. Um, that puts Scope in an interesting position because he knows that every time he's out there, he's taking time away from Shaw. And that can be a delicate balance if the players involved are not uh, are not okay with that. If if there's tension or if there's potential issues, especially because Scope is coming into the team and Shaw has already been here for you know a year and a half, that can create problems. But it's very hard to know in advance what that's going to look like. So far, it seems like everybody is getting along and we just have to wait and see if, if this is going to be actually become a problem long-term. I, I also wouldn't want to be in the position where I um, play the, my position worse than the converted third baseman who um, weighs 50 <laughs> right. pounds more than I do. So yeah. yeah. There's that too. And I mean, Shaw did look, he's looked competent at second base. He made a, a really nice turn on a double play. He made an over the, he made an over the shoulder catch. That catch was awesome. That first one in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he made that. And then also, you know, we've seen him around the bag a little bit and it hasn't been a nightmare. And that was the concern was that you were going to see some really funky things when he had to, you know, turn double play or whatever. And that yeah. has not been the case yet. And granted, it probably will be the case because if you give anybody even a great defensive 
player enough reps, they're going to do something that looks stupid. So, uh, right. Well, and I think to Paul's point about hoping that Jonathan scope doesn't get booed. Unfortunately, I think we're close. Um, If you look at, I looked at the Brewers. They say don't read the comments, but I looked at the uh, the tweets that followed the Brewers uh, lineup on Friday, where they actually announced it and Jonathan Scope was playing shortstop. The first four comments were all about how Scope needs to get a hit or how Scope is terrible. Um, there were a lot of, maybe not a lot, but there were some uh, folks on Brewers Twitter that I had seen on Wednesday night that after scope really struggled, I think he went over five with four strikeouts or something like that, that people were really getting on him pretty heavily. But part of this is not really about Jonathan scope. It's about the fact that so many people thought the team needed starting pitching more than anything else. And they didn't get starting pitching. And this goes to the off season in which a lot of people said they needed to get a top tier starter and they didn't. And apparently those top end starters were Lance Lynn and, Alex Cobb and obviously <laughs> that's probably a good thing they didn't go get them. Well this but includes also, national but media. It also though. Goes to it, but it goes to a year ago too, right? With the entire thing about Sonny Gray. Oh yeah. And it but this includes national media. All you heard on MLB Network after the trade deadline or whatever it was, well, the Brewers got scope, but they didn't get pitching and they need pitching. And there's this sort of especially starting pitching, there's this like idea that what they have just absolutely is not good enough. And it's I mean, it, it's definitely, it's not optimal. Like you don't have the big frontline starters that I think any team would hope to have, but the way the game has changed, does it even matter? No, it doesn't. If, as long as they're smart about this, um, they, they don't need to upgrade starting pitching. I think that the paying a premium on starting pitching is with the way bullpens are used now is probably going to be, get you upside down every single time at this point. If you've got a cost controlled guy, great, but like, is once September rolls around and they have like 20 pitchers to pull from, they don't need starters to do much of anything anymore. And then once you're in the postseason, you've got all the off days and you've got a, a roster where you've pared down like the back end of the rotation and you're really just relying on a lot of relievers. No, in the postseason, you have to start Wade Miley in a wild card game. <laughs> Right there, there's an obligation. That's that's the rule, right? It's actually, you, if in the you CBA, have, yeah, if you, you have didn't Wade, realize that it's in the CBA, but it's in there. If you have Wade Miley, must start in in critical game. Um, and the brewer and the Brewers were like, oh, okay, who didn't read it? Why did we sign him? It's in the CBA. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was talking to a friend about this. One of the things that the Brewers have that's an advantage that's hidden that we don't see is the Brewers right now do not have anybody that you're obligated to stick with deep into a start if they struggle in critical games. So in the postseason or in the uh, or in the the stretch run of the season, they can yank a guy. There's no John Lester here where if he's kind of not looking all that great in the second or third inning and there's some runners on, um, the Cubs maybe have to stick with him and not necessarily yank him right away. Whereas with the Brewers, Council's kind of free to do whatever, whenever, and go with, you know, whatever reliever to get out of a situation that yeah, he wants. My, my only my only only hesitation with endorsing this is that I think Council went away from it a little bit. Um right around the all-star break. But I also think a lot of that was just driven by a lot of the bullpen being hurt and Albers being hurt and some of it not being as effective as it was before. But now that they're like loaded up with Soria, in addition to everybody who was already there and have the freedom, like he's used hater. Like I like him using hater again recently. Thank goodness. But like 
they're they're built to not have starters go far. That's that's smart. That's fine. There's no reason to spend money on starters if you're going to do that. It's a waste. And, well, and and Jeremy Jeffress actually closed out the game yeah. uh, earlier uh, this week too, right? Yeah, because they said it was, it was because only right-handers were in, and if a lefty was going to be in, then we would have used Knable, uh-huh. which, by the way, is a pretty nice way of starting. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be flexible in the back end, actually, yes, is what indeed. we're going to do. Um, and so I, like, I love seeing that. I love how they've played that and I hope they keep doing it. And I, it makes me crazy to see all the desire for some like front end, super costly starter when they're, they're built to play playoff baseball right now. That's what they've been doing most of the year is ride your starter until there's any hint of trouble and then bring in your big guns and like, this is good practice. This is a good thing. Well, this is yeah. really the Kansas city model. Kansas city kind of showed that this is what you can do in 2014 and 2015 when they ran through the playoffs. And it is funny too that the Brewers have then also gone out and gotten a bunch of guys from Kansas City from those runs too. But they're they're very much building to be able to do that. Where there's no compunction on this, you know, from from Council's end, he's going to be able to pull guys really fast in the event of trouble, and that's that's you know that's an optimal situation to be in. So, um, well, and so I think this gets us to. A point that we've had a few questions on, though, as well, is that just because the trade deadline is has gone by doesn't mean that the Brewers can't make any trades, right? And so there is still an opportunity, and David Stearns has said this, that they could go and get a starting pitcher in August. And so uh, partially we can talk about, you know, briefly here, because we got to get to the John Perrin interview as well, but um, who could the Brewers conceivably get in August? But there are a couple of other questions with it. Uh Ryan Neuenschwander says, do the Brewers have the roster space for Sonny Gray? And should they go and try to get somebody like him? And PB Brew Crew asks, is this time is actually maybe should we think about this a little bit differently? And should Corbin Burns be getting a shot in the starting rotation this year? And do they not go and get somebody? So that's a lot of questions and you all can kind of take what you want from it. But there are a lot of options here. I'll take I I want the Burns part and I would not do that. Um, for many reasons, one of which is he's not stretched out. One of which is he's part of the the bullpen battery that allows all of this to happen. And um, I'm I'm not even 100% convinced that at this point in in baseball, it's like if Corbin Burns turns into a super great ace, that's good, and he might. He's really good. But if you have another hater, um, you should ride that, um, especially until you have full opportunity to stretch him out and see what he can do starting a little bit more in depth. So I would not do that this year. Um, I like the system they have going. If they want to use him for, you know, a random four-inning playoff uh, stint, that's fine um, if he can do that. But I, I wouldn't actually take these, you know, take him, have him stretch out, miss time with him while he's getting stretched out, and and and, and go that route. There's no there's no need for it. Like just use him as another bullpen ace. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm more okay with the idea of, of starting him, but I think that if you're doing that, perhaps, because you're, you're bringing up the point of having to stretch him out, instead of sending him down, once you get to September, if you wanted to stretch him out, what you could do is just start him in the games and stretch him out progressively as you're you're going through that step-by-step, because you'll have the, the roster flexibility at that point, where if he's in his first start, if he only can go two innings, you're fine with that because you can bring in a bunch of other guys and then try to stretch them out that way. I know that we've talked about a little bit the idea of was he, uh, what do you have the innings basically? Because you don't want to have, you do not want to get in a position where you have to shut him down, 
when the games are going to matter the most. And so they probably won't be in that position now that they've, they've had him in the bullpen as long as they have. So they should be okay from that perspective. I, you know, I'd like to see Corbin Burns pitch more, I guess is, is where I'm at with that. I would like to see him pitch a little bit more than what we've seen so far, because I think he can handle it. And I think he is a guy I would, I would like to see him get the chance to start turning the lineup over if not this year, because Paul makes good points about the fact that he does have such value. If you do have another, you know, really good relief ace like Hader, you do want to ride that. So that's there's well, value this, in this that. Also, like it gets to the point that Paul was talking about with having the flexibility in the bullpen. And, and Corbin Burns is the one that allows you to be more flexible. Yeah. Right. Well, him, him and Soria. Him right. And, yeah. Both of those guys um, having you know, not having to go to and nothing against Dan Jennings. I think he's kind of the, 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 the breaking the line of good to bad is Dan Jennings. And the <laughs> Dan Jennings is the guy I regularly forget is there. Yeah. Same here. Which is like, is solid, right? That means he's not bad enough that you get mad, but he's not good enough that you ever want to say, we need Dan Jennings in the game. Exactly. <laughs> get so me Dan Jennings. Anybody who's worse than Dan Jennings, if they're, if they're not pitching, that's good. And if Dan Jennings is pitching, it means you could probably stand to add somebody. And, um, like now they they barely ever have to go to Dan Jennings unless it's a blowout. He can turn into Hernan at this point, which is great. Um, so I, I keep him in the pen and I would just ride this strategy to the end of the year and if um, stretch him out next year, see what see if he's going to be a super ace. But like having like you can go Hater two innings one day and Burns two innings the next. That's that's good to have. It is, but do we need to turn to Ryan's favorite guy? Yeah, I was just going to go back to this. Yeah. Do we need do we need to turn to Sonny Gray? Because so for people who haven't been paying attention, Sonny Gray has moved to the bullpen because he's pitched his way out of the rotation for uh, the Yankees. And there is some rumbling that they might be willing to trade him. Yeah. Well, I think he's worn out his welcome in New York, (laughs) which is a thing that happens to some guys. I am incredibly glad obviously that the Brewers did not pay the freight for him last summer. It was a a really hot topic. It was something that they were, there was a lot of screaming for it, that they need to do this. This has to be done. And I I think it does show how careful teams should be when contemplating the idea of packaging up a lot of good young talent. We're not talking about packaging up Luis Ortiz, Jonathan VR and Gene Carmona here. We're talking about, you would have had to have packaged up a lot of the front end. If you're going to do that, you need to feel really good about that player. This is not a, a situation where you go out and do it because this is the best guy you can get, which I think is what it would have been if they'd gotten gray. If this was not going to be, they did this because they had targeted him. It's you do this when you have a Christian Yelich, right? When there's a guy out there that you look at and you go, that guy could be a cornerstone. He has five years of control and this is somebody we can build around and we can really make this a piece. You, But you have to feel really comfortable if you're going to make a move like that. And when they don't, they just need to pass and not say, well, this is the best guy that's available. Because I think that that really becomes a thing. It's, well, who's the best guy we can potentially get? And, and that's not a way to run gonna, a team. You you have to have more long-term vision than that. Right. And uh, if we do, I have heard that we have a few Cubs fans who listen. I don't know why, but hi. Um, well, one of them's related to me, so. Well, yes. And that's another question that, that we've talked about on the podcast, how that was allowed to happen. <laughs> but not not that how he was allowed to be related to you, but how somebody related <laughs> to you was allowed to be a Cubs fan. 
Um, but I'd like to say hi in terms of everyone who tried to tell me that Jose Quintana was an ace and, uh, you know, his four plus ERA still pretty much solidly puts him in the mid rota mid rotation starter that uh, I said, and, uh, Jimenez is absolutely destroying the ball. Aren't you glad you're here, Paul, for our airing of grievances? Uh, like the JP. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all for that. I, like I, I watched the Cubs after I watched the Brewers just for hate watching and familiarity. So I'm I'm on board with this conversation. <laughs> so uh, I will say that I do. We can slag on Joe uh, Madden a while if you want to. That's fun. Oh God, oh, that is one of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no. For how much we make fun of the Cubs fans for obsessing about the Brewers, we should probably not put our feet in our mouths too heavily. <laughs> uh, we can do this after the podcast. Um, after after we're done recording for for sure. Um, but I will say that I do think that they there is a chance that they bring in another arm in August. Um, they've talked about it a lot. The Brewers made August trade last year with, with Neil Walker. The question, though, is not just who could be available and who could be available. Guys like Irvin Santana, guys like Jordan Zimmerman, guys like uh, Francisco Liriano, like Marco Estrada, like not going to be a lot of really interesting guys. It's going to be the old veterans that you're going to try to bring in for a couple of months and try to get it done. There's not a lot of, you know, Justin Verlander who they're going to be able to try to move an entire contract. I don't think there's going to be that kind of guy that's really available outside of maybe Sonny Gray, but right. I, don't, I was going to say getting back to he's Gray. obviously not. Oh, if if Gray was out there, would you actually want to potentially make that move and see if you could rehab that value? I guess no. If if Sonny Gray's available, then that's what somebody like the Padres should go do. Yeah. Okay, um, so you wouldn't even, that, even if the cost was relatively low, you wouldn't entertain no, that as it's a... it's not just about whether or not a trade makes sense value-wise in a vacuum. It's about whether or not it's usable for a playoff push. Right, and you have to, he's not pitching well right now. That's the thing. And if you're going to fix him, it's going to take time. And then there's not time for that. It's late right. in the season at this point. So, And I mean, a team like the Padres, absolutely, if, yep. the, if, the, if the cost is worthwhile, they should be going after somebody like that. Um, but the question then becomes who leaves the rotation, right? If you go and get another starter, I Does mean, it I have to be could, somebody like they're not going to go to a six man rotation. Wait, I, wait, wait, hold on. I they the were in rotation, but, yeah, but they were doing it. We just never saw it because coming out of the break, they were going to use a six man rotation, but Suter got hurt in his first well, start. So that ended that. They were that. maybe going to do that once. That's they weren't going to. That's yeah. not necessarily true. Okay. I mean, they, they did say they were going to do it. They but. say a lot of things. Well, sure. they also say they're not like, <laughs> yes, they do. So. That's fair. Um, but because in some ways, right, like Wade Miley, his peripherals are terrible. Uh, and he's probably not going to, uh, well, he will not pitch this well over the course of the entire season. Um, but as of right now, does not deserve to be kicked out of the rotation by any stretch. Yep. I think if there is a, if there is a call, Freddie Peralta is maybe somebody that is hitting a wall um, in terms of his innings and things like that. He would probably be the guy that would see his way out of the rotation. Is he starting um, on Saturday? This is his turn. I think it is. Yeah. So we'll see. And But Zach Davies is, is going to be on his way back as well. He's got, he's got a couple of rehab starts back anyway. And, I know that with his continuous setbacks, it's hard to say, you know, yeah, he's somebody that we're going to rely upon. But 
if it's Francisco Liriano, who has a five ERA or Zach Davies, I'd rather just stick with Zach Davies. Same here. How is Marco doing right now out of curiosity? Just when you mentioned uh, him. Um, poor. Poor. Okay. He's doing poorly. Yes. He's Where's he at up. now anyway? What was that? Where's Estrada at anyway? He's still in Toronto. Is he still Toronto? Toronto? Yeah. Wow. He's, yeah, because he's gotten a lot of really... Uh, so basically, uh, if we're talking about airing of grievances, um, <laughs> I spent so much time trying to tell people that Marco Estrada was actually a good pitcher. And, he then, he went to, and then he went to Toronto and was a very good pitcher. Yep. Um, and so he's made a lot of... Uh, he has a lot of goodwill up there because it turns out that they're willing to give him an extra, probably one year too many. Um, but he pitched very well there for a long time. Yeah, and I just checked the stats. He's bad. We shouldn't get him. But yeah, um, no, he, we shouldn't do he, that. He jumped to mind just because he, you know, is not a ground ball pitcher. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, I think if there is a really interesting guy that could be gotten, it's going to be Irvin Santana from from the Twins. Irvin Santana is somebody who's coming off of Tommy John surgery, but he is about to make his debut for the Twins again. He is on a pretty good contract in which they could want to move his salary, um, but still good enough that you could actually even considerably see him being a mid-rotation starter when he's healthy as a whole. Um, but I think the last question here that we want to get to before we get to the John Perrin interview comes from Jason Spitz on Patreon, and he says, is there a universe in which the Brewers could potentially work out a two to three year extension for Christian Yelich beyond his current contract. And I bring that up because not only did we just talk about Christian Yelich as being the one guy that, you know, you actually go and unload the truck for because he's so good, but he has been on an absolute tear for the team right now. And is this something that you do try to work out a two or three year extension somehow? Um, or is that kind of reminiscent of Braun where you maybe did an extension when you didn't need to, and that didn't make any sense. No, I think this would make absolute sense for the team and makes absolutely no sense for him because a two to three year extension, he's 26 years old now, and this current contract takes him through the next four seasons after this. So he's has a chance right now to be a free agent at age 30, which is still a time when you're not super old and you can still go out and get, if you're if you're doing well and you look like a good player, you could still get decent money at that point in your career. Whereas just a two to three year extension on that takes him into, you know, just his early 30s. I think that a guy like that in this particular situation would be looking to either get a five plus year extension at this point for that time period in his career or pass and say, no, I'm going to wait you know, to get to free agency. So it, it would make absolute sense. I think for the brewers, it would not make sense for Yelich. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where it depends on what the extension actually looked like, but um, I, I kind of agree with that. It would probably be team friendly. It seems a little early for that, frankly. Um, I mean, assuming it, it might be team friendly, but they also have him on a great deal for four more seasons. Um, I guess, you know, that's, that's good. Look ahead thinking, but um a lot can happen in four years too. Guys can get seriously injured. Guys can um, have all kinds of problems. Um, We've I, seen one of the things that can happen, you know, with Braun. Yeah, that, that, there's always that possibility too. Um, you never know. Um, but I, it would probably be smart. It seems a little early for it. I, I don't know. Highly speculative at this time. Yeah, I think for my own take on it is that 
uh, four-year contract is already extremely long. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see the benefit of extending it. Um, that's not because I don't see the value or I don't think that Christian Yelich is a, a really good hitter because I think, as I've said multiple times on, on Twitter, I think he's the best hitter that the Brewers have had since in-prime Braun. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think it really makes sense for a team to really do those kind of long-term deals. I mean, what's the last time those have worked out? Yeah, A-Rod? it's so risky. Well, but uh, so, okay, so right now for 2022, which is his last year that the team has control, it's a $15 million team option. So the Brewers have the option to pick that up. That's his age 30 season. If you could get three years beyond that at 15 per. I guess so. I, I would why, think you would do that. Why Why would he do that? Yeah, would he you? wouldn't. That's what I was saying before. I'm just saying if the team right, had well, the option, yes. yes. So, yes. Is there a scenario in which something that he wouldn't accept could be possible? Yeah. If you no, could get it. Anyway, that's not going to happen. So. Right. No, that's very not. unlikely. All right, let's uh, let's get to our interview with uh, John Perrin. And for people who do want to hear the entire extended interview, uh, they can we'll we'll give more information about that for our Patreon. But for now, let's get to John. So, John, you've been in in AAA for for Colorado Springs and down in uh, in AA down in Biloxi, and a lot of people have been talking about the difference. You know, not only in AAA and AA, but the difference between pitching in elevation and pitching, um, you know, kind of down to the south where it's a lot more humid. So can you talk a little bit about what differences you've seen and uh, and what you think about kind of pitching in elevation more more generally? Yeah, um, so just kind of the way things are trending, uh, AA is kind of more of the, the younger, up-and-coming guys, a lot more 21, 22, 23-year-old hitters. Guys with a ton of talent, but just younger and not as many at bats under their belt. Um, in AAA, you kind of get a mix of the younger guys that are on their way up, but you also, there's a lot of veteran hitters. You see every team that you play pretty much is going to have at least a handful of guys with big league time in their lineup. Some guys, you know, in their, you know, early to even mid 30s who are trying to hang on and maybe get one more crack in the big league. So a lot more veteran hitters, just uh, better approaches, don't expand the zone quite as much. So from, from a pitching perspective, it, it can be a little more difficult to pitch in AAA just because there's a lot less swing and miss, uh, stuff like that. Like guys just who have thousands of professional at-bats and have kind of just been around the block, just more professional. But um, yeah, pitching in Colorado Springs is not... <laughs> It's definitely not the most fun. Uh, that whole league, the Pacific Coast League, is a big elevation league. There's a lot of places uh, that are way up in the air. I mean, Colorado Springs is the highest. I want to say it's 6,000 plus feet. But other places like Albuquerque and Reno and Vegas are are not the most pitcher-friendly places either. Um, I think the general consensus is it's just, I mean, yeah, yeah the ball flies first and foremost, like what you kind of hear with elevation. But then I think the thing that just kind of makes it a little more difficult as well is that I feel like your breaking stuff kind of tends to be a little less sharp. Uh, It it, kind of rolls in there a little bit more. So it's just a challenge. You still got to execute pitches, but it it can definitely, uh, it definitely makes mistakes get amplified and they, they go out a little bit quicker in places like that. Well, so how do you go about kind of evaluating performance then if you know 
mistakes are going to be kind of amplified to the nth degree because in some respects, um, I, I would imagine it's difficult to kind of think that you, you threw the ball well, but you made one mistake and it flew, you know, 450 feet much more than it maybe would have just gone to, you know, the warning track anywhere else. How do you try to feel like you're, you're progressing to try to make it up to the bigs? Um, well, everyone knows where you're pitching. Like, the the brass knows where you're pitching. The coaching staff knows what knows the situation. So everybody's aware of what's going on. So it's just it's just one of those things where it's it's a tough environment. But you everyone that's everyone there is dealing with the same elements. So you just kind of have to take it for what it is. Like you know it's you know what's going to happen. So you just have to do your best to to overcome the elements and just try and make quality pitches in the down zone. Yeah. Well, I think. We've seen a lot of guys uh, make the make the jump from from Double A and from Triple A. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of a lot of fans have been uh, rooting for you over the years, and I think one of the reasons that a lot of fans have gravitated towards your career and your story is the fact that uh, much more than I think a lot of minor league players, you've been a little bit more uh, visible and vocal about labor issues within both the minors and the majors. Um, and, and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were accepted to, to a law program at the university of Kansas, correct? Yeah, that's correct. But, uh, obviously putting it on hold for, for, for baseball, but what's, what's the goal long-term with that? So there's just a couple, couple different things with that. Um, I, I do like labor issues. I think it's a very interesting subject. And for me, I think being someone who could, possibly work for the players union and help make sure that the players are maintaining their fair share of revenues in, in the game and, and keeping things uh, up to par with that and making sure because uh, throughout the history of our game, we've had one of the strongest players unions, not just in sports, but as far as unions go, we've had one of the strongest unions in all of, in all of the labor market in America. So I think continuing that trend and making sure that we have great representation for players at the bargaining table is something that I would love to do going forward after I'm done playing. And I know that it, the biggest, I think this last off season was kind of when a lot of labor issues came to right, it came to light in terms of, you know, how much of the economic pie is going to players versus to owners versus, you know, a, a lot of brass in general. And it seems that I think baseball, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, is is quite a bit behind the NBA and the NFL now. Is this just is this just kind of how how baseball is it unique in some way? Is this just been uh, kind of unforeseen circumstances in terms of how teams are starting to evaluate talent, or what what are you starting to see as as something that maybe baseball could work on? Um, I'm not sure. I don't have the numbers, so I can't really comment on how Major League Baseball is compensated versus the other sports leagues uh, in this country. But uh, this off season, I mean, everyone everyone kind of saw it. It just kind of played out, uh, and. It, there were just a lot of veteran guys, you know, the Jake Arrietas, the Mike Moustakis, uh, J.D. Martinez, like some really high-profile names, guys with a lot of experience who have been around the game a long time, just struggling to get deals. There's, a, you know, Jose Batista, another big name that comes to mind, just a lot of, lot of veteran guys 
just were having a tough time getting deals and it was just a it was just a very cold free agent market as far as just being for veteran players with a lot of experience kind of on the I guess the back end of your career where they kind of are getting like, like that one last big contract. It seemed like it was, it was just a really cold market this year. So, uh, I'm sure that's going to be a topic of discussion going forward, especially coming into this offseason to see, you know, where some big name players hitting, like some serious big name players hitting the market this year. It'll be interesting to see how, how that market plays out again this year. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the other things that I think some people started to talk about, but I don't think it's hit mainstream whatsoever, but there are a lot of labor issues in terms of minor league baseball as well. And what, what have you, like, what do you see kind of in a, in a day-to-day basis that you think fans who maybe don't pay as much of attention to, to the minor league side or don't get a chance to go out to, uh, to the, to the ballpark if they're not in Appleton or if they're not in Biloxi. Um, what do fans need to know about what's happening on the labor side down in the minors? Okay, so that answers kind of two parts. The first part is we don't get paid like the big leaguers get paid, and I think that's a huge misconception. Is Yeah, we're professional baseball players, but the, and the, a lot of your casual fancies, you know, some of the bonuses that some of the top picks get, they think we're kind of the same boat as big leaguers, but the vast or the reality is that the vast majority of, of minor league guys did not sign for a million dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you have a full-time job and you're sitting in the stands of a minor league game, you are, there's about a 99.9% chance that you're making more money than the guys that are out there playing. And then the second part of that is in, in this this uh this spring the uh, in the U.S. spending bill, the government spending bill, there was a little tidbit called the Save America's Pastime Act uh, that got thrown into the spending bill that was lobbied for by MLB, um, basically exempting Major League Baseball from minimum wage laws, allowing them to keep minor league salaries to a very very low number and. It's basically codified into law, and it's going to be very difficult for any change to occur in that because of said spending bill. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the big things that I think really started to bring minor league labor issues to the fore. Because I think another thing that people don't understand is that minor leaguers are not covered by the players' union. No, we are not. They're... The Major League Baseball Players Union covers the 25-man roster and then 40-man roster players who are all who are in the minor leagues. But if you're not on that Foreman roster, no, you are, you're on your own. There is no minor league players union currently. And, uh, that has kind of been a, so that's kind of been a topic of discussion and just how minor leaguers can best help themselves. And it's going to be very difficult going forward to get any sort of change without any kind of, organization for myself one of the the things in terms of you know if if big league organizations were as committed as possible to the development of their minor the minor league players to be able to maximize you know everybody's potential down there and not you know putting aside just being able to pay people enough to be able to you know to eat and to rent a place and and to be able to feel comfortable but thinking about the, the the baseball side of it 
how like what what is what are the negative impacts of kind of you know the the low wages the the late nights the having to eat out at fast food restaurants etc like what are the negative impacts that kind of impinge on on you know not maybe not yours in particular but other players that you have played with their baseball development just because financial issues are there yeah so i mean some of the stuff just with the way the baseball schedule is i mean same in big leagues like they're gonna have overnight flights at some points too like you're gonna like the 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 course of the season is not easy it's supposed it's a grind it's supposed to be that way but um the two things I think that impact development the most would probably be with as far as when it comes to low wages is one is housing costs during the season and two the off season. So our salaries are from basically the first of April until the first week of September. You don't get paid for spring training and you don't get paid for the off season. And so that makes it a little difficult or it makes it difficult. I mean, you're, you're already making, you're basically making substance level wages where you can, you can pay rent, get some food. And that's, you know, that's pretty much it during the season. And it's very difficult to save for anything for when your checks stop in September. So you basically have to go find a, like for me, I've worked multiple different part-time jobs just to kind of make ends meet and, pay my bills during the off season, you know, I've done substitute teaching, I've worked in a restaurant, uh, done pitching lessons, done personal training, just whatever you can do to to make ends meet. And then during the season, housing can be can be very difficult. because uh, I mean you're signing a short term lease, it's you know, usually either month to month or five five month lease. And at any point you can get moved. So like, for example, like this year I was in the start of the year uh, in Colorado Springs and about halfway through the season, calling the manager's office and say, Hey, you're, uh, we need you to go down to Biloxi. You're going to, you're going to go down to Biloxi. And I was like, Oh, okay. Hey, go pack up your stuff and you're leaving. Like, can you leave tonight? Or cause I had my car, so I was going to drive. So I was like, can you leave tonight? Or are you going to leave tomorrow? And I was like, uh, okay, I'll leave tonight. And so I had to do that. I had to have my roommates help me, like, get me off the lease at my apartment in Colorado Springs, show up in Biloxi, ask around for somewhere to live, see if anybody had an opening. Luckily, we had one guy, one group of guys had an opening. Uh, just kind of come, come show up and have to sign another lease to get on a different lease and so it can be very difficult to try and come up with housing and most of your, like probably one full paycheck a month is usually going to your rent and bills. Yeah. I think, and I, you know, hadn't even thought of the, the month to month piece uh, of housing. And I mean, that just adds a whole nother level of stress in terms of being able to basically pick up your life and move in a single day. And I mean, because it's not like a situation in which they're asking if you want to go to Biloxi, right? No, I mean it's you're you're just going, yeah, and it can happen. Yeah, it, was, it literally just happens. Like it's it's a part of the game. You you live out of a suitcase for six months out of the year, which you know is, is a fact of life. But it it makes it difficult when you just have to get up, move, and go to a different city 
find a new place to live, you know. So that like it would be so it would one or twofold. I think if if you're a team, if you're a big league club and you know you're gonna be in a at an affiliate for a long time or you wanna be in an affiliate for a long time, either establishing some sort of deal or establishing like a complex like maybe not like building housing but like going up to an apartment complex in town and just being like we are going to take these five units or these six units for six months out of the year for our players to live in or giving us a stipend for housing in order to help us kind of offset some of those costs would be that would go a long long ways yeah i think that that makes a lot of sense and i know that there have been some there have been some talks in terms of you know trying to improve nutrition down in the minors um physical training things like that Uh, what are some of the improvements that you've seen you know in your years there yeah so the brewers actually do a really good job I got you. Got to give the credit to the Brewers. They do a really good job. They've invested a significant amount of money into the nutrition program, and they actually do do a really good job. So, as far as food goes, like being in the Brewers organization is. I mean, I don't. I I have some friends and other organizations that are both good and bad. But from what I've heard, Brewers, uh, the Brewers do it about as well as anybody. Uh, they actually pay for our meals to be catered before and after the game. So you get a pregame spread, you know, usually something light like sandwiches, fruit, salad, something along those lines, decent little spread. And they usually get a nice, a decent meal after the game. So it actually has improved a lot in in the three plus, three and a half years I've been in the organization. They actually have done a really good job. They've invested pretty heavily in the nutrition side. Um, So being a brewer, it's actually a lot better than most places for sure. Is is that something that changes? Like it, the quality of food gets better as you're moving up the minor league ladder or is that kind of a uniform thing within the organization? So from what I've heard from older players, it used to be as you got, like as you went up, it got better. But now, I mean, I think they started doing that catering program in 16, which is my second year in the organization. And uh, from A ball, from high A all the way, high A, double A, triple A has all been, you know, pretty solid food for the most part. I mean, it's not, you're not eating any gourmet meals, but, you know, you're getting some rice, some chicken, some vegetables, you know, something along, you know, something simple but effective and, you know, pretty decent to eat. So it's it's a pretty solid, solid program all the way through. Well, and so I, I guess kind of turning to, to Biloxi, you all have a good team there this year. How has it been... I think, you know, playing throughout the summer now that, uh, I guess, postseason race is going to be down, coming down the stretch here. Yeah, so we've already locked a playoff. They uh, they, they won the first half, so they've locked in a playoff spot already. Uh, so we're for sure playing in the playoffs. But uh, this is a really fun team, man. we got some exciting players. Uh, you know, we've got Corey and Keston and Choice uh, Stokes. Um, it was really sad to see uh, Jake Gatewood go down with an injury last week. He was having a really good year. Uh, Lucas Ursig, you know, and we've had a couple couple big big time guys for us go ahead and be a part of some trades to help our big league club with Cody Madero's and Luis Ortiz. So 
it's been a fun team to be a part of. This is a, there's a ton of talent on this team, and uh, it's a good group of guys for sure. I've talked to people in the past. I mean, like the the minor league postseason. I mean, you all are in that, right? Like, it's not just like show up and play, and and the results don't matter. Like, y'all are after the championship. Yeah, why not, man? You get a ring. Like, you're there. <laughs> you might as well win the whole dang thing, right? Like, I mean, anytime you step on a field, you're trying to win. So, and I mean, it's playoffs. Like, you're competing for you're competing for some hardware. So, yeah, hundred percent, you're in there to try to win it. No reason not to be. Well, and the, and the Brewers have just basically gotten to Biloxi in the last couple of years, but it seems from, by all accounts, you know, just kind of paying attention to on the fringes, I suppose, not getting down there, but it seems like the community has really embraced y'all. Oh, uh, yeah. I think we do a lot of community outreach. I think the the management group of, of the team is really big on trying to integrate us into the community. Um, so, yeah, it's a good place to play. I mean... I think the first year here was in 15, and so basically a brand new ballpark. It's a really nice facility. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good place to play for sure. Um, interesting little town with all the casinos and stuff going around. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good place to play, and we've been – I mean, this is – I've been on this team for parts of three different seasons, so uh, we've been in the playoff hunt. Each of the last two years when I was with the team, we just came up a little short. And I know they were in the playoffs at 15, so they put good product out on the field. And, and it, it's been, you know, and especially with this season, you know, it's a fun team to watch. So I think that really helps get, get the community excited about it. Well, I know that Brewers fans in general are hoping to uh, to see you up in the big leagues. But um, but I, I, I guess I just wanted to say thanks a lot for going kind of taking a wide range of issues for for the interview here and hopefully we'll get a chance to both either talk to you or or see you in Miller Park in the in the coming years, man. Yeah, I sure hope so too, man. That's the goal. I really appreciate you uh, letting me talk to you and uh had a pleasure. And that's going to do it for the show this week. Thank you to everybody for the questions. Thank you to John for the interview. We do have a couple of folks like Chris Croninger who asked questions about the uh, expanded rosters who I said we'd try to get to this week. Unfortunately, we just kind of ran out of time. So we will keep that question in for next week's podcast because we do have some extra time for it. So uh, Chris, I apologize, but we will get to that. Before we go, huge shout out to our new Patreon subscriber, Jeffrey Emenecker. Um, and thanks for giving us a shout out on Twitter. Appreciated that. Oh yeah, saw that. Yeah, that was nice. And... For other folks who potentially want to hear more from John, from John Perrin or want to hear Ryan and I talk about uh, more minor league stuff, which we will be doing in this upcoming week, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Patron, uh, patrons at the ball and glove level will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast, and we've been trying to do more and more interviews as that's been going along. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at mketailgate. You can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your favorite uh, podcasts, uh, the Google Play Store. And please leave us reviews and help people find the podcast. Uh, And thanks for listening. And make sure you look for us again on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Thank you. There where the fans
Yeah, nailed it. Nailed it. You didn't even know, and you nailed it. Nicely done. I know. Nailed it.